John Rappaport, no more fake news. As I keep making the case that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has not been proven to exist, I'm also making this point. There is no honest and prolonged mainstream debate on this issue, and there has to be. Reputable journals should be opening up their pages to such a debate from all comers, and they aren't. They're ignoring, sidestepping, and suppressing a debate. This is not science. It's not even a shadow of science. And the COVID virus is not the first time the issue of existence has arisen. If more people understood that, they wouldn't be so shocked. Here are several cases from recent history. In the early part of the 20th century, a very nasty skin disease called pellagra took hold in the American South, affecting several million people. The elite medical view, of course, a germ was the cause. But no one could find it in the ensuing decades. Finally, a small group of independent researchers, relentlessly pursuing a different course, convinced the establishment that the true cause was a niacin deficiency. In the 1960s and 70s, Japan experienced a strange nervous system affliction labeled Smone. Again the clarion call was, find the virus, it must be a virus. But no, in a landmark court case, the cause was shown to be a gastrointestinal drug, clioquinol, manufactured by Siba Gaigi. The company apologized and paid out damages. Since then, some research has suggested that clioquinol fails to explain all the Smone cases. SARS, 2003. During the height of hysteria in Canada about this flu-like illness, famous WHO researcher, Frank Plummer, wandered off the reservation and told the press that fewer and fewer SARS patients showed any sign of having the virus, in fact, the percentage was shrinking to zero. Therefore, what virus? Swine flu, 2009. As I detailed in a recent article, CBS investigative reporter Cheryl Atkinson uncovered the fact that the CDC had secretly stopped counting cases, because the overwhelming percentage of patient samples coming back from testing labs showed no sign of the swine flu virus or any other flu virus. HIV, first announced as the cause of AIDS in 1984, has been challenged by a number of independent researchers. I have published Christine Johnson's explosive and detailed interview with Eleni Papadopoulos, a biophysicist and leader of a group of HIV-slash-AIDS scientists from Perth in Western Australia. The subject? Does HIV exist? I'm reprinting my article and the Papadopoulos interview below. There are other illnesses in which the existence of the virus has been challenged. For example, polio and the swine flu of the 1970s. Mainstream and independent investigators should also be aware there are analogous missing causes within the medical framework. The most egregious example is certainly psychiatry. Following the breakthrough work of psychiatrist Peter Bregan, I've written extensively on this subject. In a nutshell, there are no defining lab tests for any of the 300 so-called mental disorders. Every one of these disorders is arbitrarily assembled by committees of psychiatrists, from menus of behaviors. This is about as far from science as you can get. Is there an open and honest prolonged debate about this stunning situation in the psychiatric literature? Absolutely not. Dash. Here is my article, Does HIV Exist? Buckle up. Before we get to Christine Johnson's interview, a bit of background. My first book, AIDS Incorporated, was published in 1988. The research I engaged in then formed a foundation for my recent work in exposing the vast fraud called COVID-19. In 1987-88, my main question eventually became, does HIV cause AIDS? For months, I had blithely assumed the obvious answer was yes. This created havoc in my investigation, because I was facing contradictions I couldn't solve. For example, in parts of Africa, people who were chronically ill and dying obviously needed no push from a new virus. 
all their AIDS conditions and symptoms could be explained by their environment, contaminated water supplies, sewage pumped directly into the drinking water, protein calorie malnutrition, hunger, starvation, medical treatment with immunosuppressive vaccines and drugs, toxic pesticides, fertile farmland stolen by corporations and governments, wars, extreme poverty. The virus cover story actually obscured all these ongoing crimes. Finally, in the summer of 1987, I found several researchers who were rejecting the notion that HIV caused AIDS. Their reports were persuasive. I'm shortcutting a great deal of my 1987-8 investigation here, but once HIV was out of the picture for me, many pieces fell into place. I discovered that, in every group supposedly at high risk for AIDS, their conditions and symptoms could be entirely explained by factors that had nothing to do with a new virus. AIDS was not one condition. It was an umbrella label, used to repackage a number of immunosuppressive conditions and create the illusion of a new and unique and single pandemic. Several years after the publication of AIDS Incorporated, I became aware of a quite different emerging debate going on under the surface of research. Does HIV exist? Was the purported virus ever truly discovered? And that question led to, what is the correct procedure for discovering a new virus? The following 1997 interview, conducted by brilliant freelance journalist, Christine Johnson, delves into these questions. How should researchers prove that a particular virus exists? How should they isolate it? What are the correct steps? These questions, and their answers, reside at the heart of most disease research, and yet, overwhelmingly, doctors never explore them or even consider them. Johnson interviews Dr. Eleni Papadopoulos, a biophysicist and leader of a group of HIV-AIDS scientists from Perth in Western Australia. Over the past decade and more she and her colleagues have published many scientific papers questioning the HIV-AIDS hypothesis. Here I'm publishing and highlighting excerpts from the interview. Technical issues are discussed. Grasping them is not the easiest exercise you've ever done, but I believe the serious reader can comprehend the vital essentials. Christine Johnson, Does HIV Cause AIDS? Eleni Papadopoulos, There is no proof that HIV causes AIDS. CJ, Why not? EP, for many reasons, but most importantly, because there is no proof that HIV exists. CJ, didn't Luke Montagnier and Robert Gallo, purportedly the co-discoverers of HIV, isolate HIV back in the early 80s? EP, no. In the papers published in Science by those two research groups, there is no proof of the isolation of a retrovirus from AIDS patients. HIV is said to be a retrovirus. CJ, they say they did isolate a virus. EP, our interpretation of the data differs. To prove the existence of a virus you need to do three things. First, culture cells and find a particle you think might be a virus. Obviously, at the very least, that particle should look like a virus. Second, you have to devise a method to get that particle on its own so you can take it to pieces and analyze precisely what makes it up. Then you need to prove the particle can make faithful copies of itself. In other words, that it can replicate. CJ, can't you just look down a microscope and say there's a virus in the cultures? EP, no, you can't. Not all particles that look like viruses are viruses. CJ, my understanding is that high-speed centrifugation is used to produce samples consisting exclusively of objects having the same density, a so-called density-purified sample. Electron microscopy is used to see if these density-purified samples consist of objects which all have the same appearance, in which case the sample is an isolate, and if this appearance matches that of a retrovirus, in terms of size, shape, and so forth. If all this is true, then you are three steps into the procedure for obtaining a retroviral isolate. 1. 
you have an isolate, and the isolate consists of objects with the same, 2, density and, 3, appearance of a retrovirus. Then you have to examine this isolate further, to see if the objects in it contain reverse transcriptase, an enzyme, and will replicate when placed in new cultures. Only then can you rightfully declare that you have obtained a retroviral isolate. EP, exactly. It was discovered that retroviral particles have a physical property which enables them to be separated from other material in cell cultures. That property is their buoyancy, or density, and this was utilized to purify the particles by a process called density gradient centrifugation. The technology is complicated, but the concept is extremely simple. You prepare a test tube containing a solution of sucrose, ordinary table sugar, made so the solution is light at the top but gradually becomes heavier, or more dense, towards the bottom. Meanwhile, you grow whatever cells you think may contain your retrovirus. If you're right, retroviral particles will be released from the cells and pass into the culture fluids. When you think everything is ready, you decant a specimen of culture fluids and gently place a drop on top of the sugar solution. Then you spin the test tube at extremely high speeds. This generates tremendous forces, and particles present in that drop of fluid are forced through the sugar solution until they reach a point where their buoyancy prevents them from penetrating any further. In other words, they drift down the density gradient until they reach a spot where their own density is the same as that region of the sugar solution. When they get there they stop, altogether. To use virological jargon, that's where they band. Retroviruses band at a characteristic point. In sucrose solutions they band at a point where the density is 1.16 gram ml. That band can then be selectively extracted and photographed with an electron microscope. The picture is called an electron micrograph, or M. The electron microscope enables particles the size of retroviruses to be seen, and to be characterized by their appearance. CJ, so, examination with the electron microscope tells you what fish you've caught? EP, not only that. It's the only way to know if you've caught a fish. Or anything at all. CJ, did Montagnier and Gallo do this? EP, this is one of the many problems. Montagnier and Gallo did use density gradient banding, but for some unknown reason they did not publish any EMS, photos, of the material at 1.16 gram ml. This is quite puzzling because in 1973 the Pasteur Institute hosted a meeting attended by scientists, some of whom are now amongst the leading HIV experts. At that meeting the method of retroviral isolation was thoroughly discussed, and photographing the 1.16 band of the density gradient was considered absolutely essential. CJ, but Montagnier and Gallo did publish photographs of virus particles. EP, no. Montagnier and Gallo published electron micrographs of culture fluids that had not been centrifuged, or even separated from the culture cells, for that matter. These M's contained, in addition to many other things, including the culture cells and other things that clearly are not retroviruses, a few particles which Montagnier and Gallo claimed are retroviruses, and which all belong to the same retroviral species, now called HIV. But photographs of unpurified particles don't prove that those particles are viruses. The existence of HIV was not established by Montagnier and Gallo, or anyone since, using the method presented at the 1973 meeting. CJ, and what was that method? EP, all the steps I have just told you. The only scientific method that exists. Culture cells, find a particle, isolate the particle, take it to pieces, find out what's inside, and then prove those particles are able to make more of the same with the same constituents when they're added to a culture of uninfected cells. CJ, so before AIDS came along there was a well-tried method for proving the existence of a retrovirus, but Montagnier and Gallo did not follow this method? EP, they used some of the techniques, 
but they did not undertake every step including proving what particles, if any, are in the 1.16 gram ml band of the density gradient, the density that defines retroviral particles. CJ, but what about their pictures? EP, Montagnier's and Gallo's electron micrographs, are of entire cell cultures, or of unpurified fluids from cultures. End of interview excerpt. If you grasp the essentials of this discussion, you'll see there is every reason to doubt the existence of HIV, because the methods for proving its existence were not followed. And so, as I've reported these past few months, there is every reason to doubt and reject the existence of the COVID virus, since correct large-scale electron microscope studies have never been done. I kept the Christine Johnson interview, and other similar information, in mind when, for example, I explored the dud epidemics called SARS and 2009 swine flu. How many viruses have been named as causes of disease, when in fact those viruses have never been isolated or proved to exist? Of course, conventional consensus researchers and doctors will scoff at any attempt to raise these issues. For them, the science is settled. Meaning, they don't want to think. They don't want to stir the waters. After 30 years working as a reporter in the area of deep medical research fraud, I've seen that false science occurs in levels. The deeper you go, the stranger it gets. To put it another way, the deeper you go, the worse it gets. This article, republished with permission, originally appeared here. Copyright John Rappaport. All rights reserved. The author of three explosive collections, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix and Power Outside the Matrix, John Rappaport was a candidate for a U.S. congressional seat in the 29th District of California. Nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, he has worked as an investigative reporter for 30 years, writing articles on politics, medicine and health for CBS Healthwatch, LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, and other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe. John has delivered lectures and seminars on global politics, health, logic and creative power to audiences around the world. You can sign up for his free emails here. To read about John's mega-collection, Exit from the Matrix, click here.